Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good afternoon. Thank you all so much for attending today's virtual roundtable. The Center for a New American Security is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research, and the Military Veterans and Society program is proud to host events like this one. I'm Kayla Williams, Senior Fellow and Director of the MVS program. I also played a small role in Rand's research about the VA health system, am the former director of VA's Center for Women Veterans, and am a user of VA healthcare. The gap between public perception of the quality of VA healthcare and what research shows has long baffled me. One challenge that stands out is how to effectively communicate with journalists and current or potential patients. The results VA reported compared VA hospitals to one another, but how the Washington DC VA hospital stacks up against the one in San Diego, California is meaningless to me as a patient trying to decide where to go for care. Similarly, research comparing VA as a system to other systems of care may not help folks trying to decide whether to go to their own local VA hospital or request a referral for community care. While there is a great deal of information made public, it's confusing for regular folks to understand and navigate, unlike the apps we frequently turn to when choosing, say, a hotel or restaurant. Accordingly, it's been a great pleasure to partner with MFRI to design a research project that would compare individual VA hospitals to similar nearby hospitals on a limited number of measures and publish that information in what I hope is a user-friendly and digestible format. Joining me today to present the results of that research are Drs. Jill Innerstraat and Shelley McDermott-Wadsworth. Jill, a two-time Peace Corps volunteer, is a former intern with the Military Family Research Institute at Purdue University. Her research examines the intersections of family communication, health disparities, and public health. Shelley is a research is a professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at Purdue University, where she directs the Center for Families, as well as the Family Military Family Research Institute, which she co-founded. Her primary research interest is the relationship between work conditions and family life, with special focus on military families. In just a moment, I'll turn it over to Jill so she can present their findings. After Shelley talks about MFR's Measuring Communities Initiative, we'll move on to Q&A. Audience members, please feel free to type any questions that you have into the chat box at any time during the presentation and discussion, and then I'll pose them to Jill and Shelley at the end. Jill, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. And so we've titled this study, um, Comparing VA and Non-VA Medical Centers, Informing Veteran Healthcare Choice at the Mission Act Watershed. And um, first of all, Shelley and I would like to thank Kayla, you, uh, Natalie, Emma, and everybody at Center for a New American Security for supporting this, this work and research over the past year. Uh, you can go to the next slide. As Kayla said, uh, Military Family Research Institute is housed at Purdue University. 
Uh, they conduct research and outreach for communities and professionals who serve military and veteran families. They also operate the military or the um, Measuring Communities Public Database, which is a database that um, both individuals and organizations can search to learn more about their veteran communities. Uh, Center for a New American Security, as many of you know, performs research and analysis to shape and elevate the national security and foreign policy debate in Washington and beyond. Uh, one of their seven research programs uh, includes military veterans and society, uh, which Kayla is the director of. And then Purdue University's Department of Public Health, um, where I come from as a, as a graduate, both with a, P, uh, a PhD and an MPH, uh, our mission is to discover, disseminate, and apply knowledge to promote the public's health at home and abroad and to achieve equitable and sustainable local to global health. And so as part of the MPH program, which is a professional program, um, I was tasked with a 400-hour internship, which I completed with the Military Family Research Institute. Uh, next slide, please. And so with this project, um, we, had, we had some goals. One was to identify a reasonable comparator for every full-service VA medical center in the United States, and then to compare these both in aggregate the entire body of VA to the entire body of non-VA comparators in terms of clinical and patient experience measures, and then also to compare them on a one-to-one -one basis. The results of this, or the deliverables, were first a data point in the Measuring Communities database that Shelley's going to talk about a little bit later, um, a working paper, which has already been published by, by CNAS last month, and then also a forthcoming article for peer review that will contain some additional analysis not contained in the working paper. Next slide, please. Briefly, as many of you know, veterans have unique healthcare challenges. Um, uh, female veterans in particular uh, are more likely to be food insecure and food insecurity is associated with delaying access to health care and with overall negative health care outcomes. Um, delaying care for women in general is commonplace and this can be for a lot of reasons. It can be related to childcare issues, um, distance or time needing to travel, and also having to take off work in order to go and, and access health care. That said, we know that female veterans who only use the VA have a, have a higher opinion of the VA system than women who use only non-VA care or who use mixed care. Um, and this, was, this has been substantiated, particularly in the VFW's Our Care report last year, that also found that veterans who are disconnected from VA services, they don't tend to have a high opinion of the VA. Um, but those veterans who use exclusively the VA do have a higher opinion. Um, the veteran population trends older, and there are unique problems that accompany being an older veteran, especially now um, in, the, in the atmosphere of COVID-19, where older veterans are at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19 um, and, and needing care for that reason. Veterans have unique mental and physical health care needs. Um, they, they have... Um, an increase in, in mental health care needs, but they also have more traumatic injuries, including traumatic brain injuries um, and, um, and, and the need for amputations. And then finally, rural veterans have trouble accessing care because of issues of um, transportation, being able to take off work to travel far distances. And also we find that they're often not aware of the services that are available to them. And so all of this, this context frames the fact that we're trying to um, we're trying to get at with this study, which is how do VAs stack up to, to civilian medical centers. Next slide, please. And so again, as many of you know, um, under the Veteran Choice Program, 
prior to the Mission Act of 2018, if a veteran wanted to seek outside care within the community, um, they had to encounter more than a 30-day waiting period for care, live more than 40 miles from their nearest VA facility, um, or maybe have no road access to the nearest VA, need to take a boat or a plane. Uh, if they had an unusual or excessive burden in accessing care, perhaps related to transportation or to disability, or if there was no full service VA in their state. Next slide, please. The Mission Act of 2018, which was implement, implemented just last year in June of 2019, uh, was in response to the, um, the veterans healthcare scandal of 2014, wherein it was found that veterans were, late, uh, were waiting exorbitant times, particularly for mental health care, but also for, for, for physical health care and primary care. And so the Mission Act of 2018 does a lot of things. It provides for increased telemedicine. Um, it provides uh, some some services for care providers, for example, within the home. But one of the things that it does is it changes the qualifications under which a veteran can access community care. Next slide, please. And so under this new, under the Mission Act, as of June of 2019, a veteran can access community care if the service is not available at any VA medical facility, such as obstetric um, labor and delivery for, for female veterans, if there's no full service VA in their state, if they were grandfathered into the distance eligibility under the CHOICE program, so that the, if they still live um, within the required drive time, they can, or, or even if they don't, but if they still live where they did under the previous program, they can still access their, um, their previous healthcare provider. If the VA can't furnish within the access standards, and so this has been changed instead of the 40 mile um, driving distance, this has been changed to 30 minute drive time for primary or mental health care, or 60 minute drive time for specialty care. Um, similarly, the wait times have changed, and so if a veteran has to wait more than 20 days for primary or mental health care, or more than 28 days for specialty health care, then they can access outside um, an, out, an outside provider. If their clinician recommends that they seek outside care, or if the VA does not comply with the quality standards um, that they themselves have set forth. And so what we are looking at here in this study are those quality standards. Next slide, please. And so a little bit about our process and how we, how we came to the analysis that we came to. The first thing that we did is we met in DC last year in June with the relevant stakeholders. Next slide, please. We met with representatives from CNAS, MFRI, um, with the VA, and then also with RAND, as Kayla said in the, in the introduction, um, researchers from RAND Corporation have been interrogating this issue of of VA versus non-VA care, um, evaluating in terms of quality. And so we wanted to get some of their feedback as well. Next slide, please. The, the next thing that we had to do was to choose the measures that we were going to evaluate these hospitals on. Next slide, please. And so we came up with four clinical measures and three patient experience measures um, using that input from, from the RAND researchers and from the VA. And our four clinical measures are the IMM2, and that is the percentage of patients who, when admitted to the hospital, they're screened for whether or not they have had a flu shot. And if they haven't gotten that flu shot, they're then administered one. 
PSI-4 is preventable surgical deaths. So if you go into the hospital, if you go into surgery and you have some preventable complication, what is the chance that you die from that complication? Catheter-associated urinary tract infections per 1,000 device days and MRSA infections per 1,000 bed days. We originally started with a different measure, the PSI-90, which is a, a large composite measure of, of safety. Um, we were unable to obtain the most recent uh, um, output or the most recent data for VA and non-VA, or they weren't necessarily um, they weren't necessarily comparable in in terms of the time frame. And so, instead, we chose two um, easily accessible measures that we were then able to use as proxies for that PSI ninety. Next slide, please. And then we looked at patient experience measures, and we chose three of those. The first is the CTM3. Um, all of these come from the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems, or HCAPS survey. This is a survey that's, that is um, administered between 48 hours and six weeks after discharge. So if you've been discharged from the hospital, you may have been sent this survey over email, or you may have gotten a phone call to conduct this survey. Um, the civilian, the, the HCAPS is a civilian um, instrument, a civilian tool, but there is a there is a, compar uh, a comparative tool that is used by the VA, which is called SHEP. And so we were able to access these patient experience measures in both populations. The CTM3 is a, is a composite measure of three questions, and this um, involves care transition. So when a patient leaves the hospital, do they feel adequately prepared to transition home in terms of the drugs that they're using, in terms of um, the care that they're, that they're going to be provided in the home? And so this is the percentage of patients who respond strongly agree to those three questions. HCAPS number 18 is the percentage of patients who give the hospital um, an, a rating of 9 or 10 on a 10-point scale. And HCAPS number 19 is the percentage of patients who would definitely recommend that hospital to friends and family. Next slide, please. And so after choosing measures, we had to choose the predictors or we had to choose the way that we were going to compare the two hospitals and figure out which one was a comparator. And we selected those comparators based on, um, on a few different variables. Next slide, please. In deciding the way that we were going to, to, to locate comparators, we often reference this study from 2010, Lehrman et al., uh, which was researchers from CMM and also from RAND. They weren't comparing VA to non-VA medical centers, but they were comparing medical centers, hospitals in general. And so we found that the, the demographic variables that they used uh, were really accessible to us, and, and we decided to sort of dovetail off of those. Next slide, please. They used um, bedside, rural urban designation, census division, ownership, teaching status, and the percentage of days billed to Medicare as the way to compare medical centers. Um, they were looking at HCAPS outcomes as well and also um, Hospital Quality Alliance clinical measures. Next slide, please. And so after consulting that and other studies, in, including the ones that were conducted by RAND, we settled on these five um, ways to compare and to, to select a comparator. First was ownership, and we used the American Hospital Association, or AHA, designation of um, private or proprietary government, non-government, um, non-governmental ownership, and then also VA ownership. 
We immediately eliminated proprietary and private hospitals because we felt that they would just be too dissimilar in terms of what a veteran would use to compare um, when deciding whether or not to try and seek outside care. For proximity, um, we had to locate hospitals for comparison that were, with, that were within that 30-minute drive time. And since we didn't have access to the defense table of distances, which is what the VA uses, um, if you call the VA and you say, I, I'm interested in seeking outside care, and they go to calculate that average 30-minute drive time, the defense table of distances is what they use. However, we were able to access a publicly available tool, which is the American Enterprise Institute VA Mission Act access map. And what that does is it calculates, um, it draws polygons around the VA in order to, to determine what is that 30 minute drive time. And so a veteran can actually go to this, go to the American Enterprise um, Institute's map online and know ahead of time when they call the VA what the chances are that they're going to be cleared um, for that outside, um, for outside access based on their drive time. We looked at bed size and the AHA determines bed size as um, under 100 beds is designated as small, 100 to 399 is designated as medium and 400 and over um, as large. Next was rural urban continuum code. Um, that's an office of management and budget urban rural designation that is actually already in the measuring communities database that, that organizations might search in order to learn more about the rurality of their, of their um, rurality or um, the, the level of um, urbanness of the locations where veterans in their community are located. And so we decided to keep that um, to maintain consistency across our, our database and measuring communities. And then finally, teaching status. And the AHA um, uses not, um, not a teaching hospital, none, minor or major. And so what we did in order to select comparators is, as I said, we immediately eliminated those private and proprietary hospitals. Um, we then located all of the hospitals that were within that 30-minute drive radius, and there were a few cases where we couldn't find one, and, and in which case we located the ones that were um, closest to that radius. And then we, th we then looked at how many similarities there were and chose the comparator hospital that had the most similarities in terms of bed size, rural urban continuum code, and teaching status. Next slide, please. After selecting our comparators, uh, we needed to locate all of the data sets for both the VA and the non-VA hospitals, and we needed to make sure that those data sets were copacetic in terms of the, um, the recency of that data release. And so actually in the middle of the process, some data was released, and so we had to change some things up. But I said, as I said before, that's when we edited and, and took out that PSI-90 measure because we found that um, we, couldn't, we couldn't find the the two sets of data that would that would be able to be compared to each other so we revised the measures based on availability um, we also had to eliminate some uh, medical centers because we didn't have demographic information we couldn't find demographic information for them um, or because there just wasn't enough information in the measures there wasn't enough reporting that we were able to compare and so we ended up with 125 pairs and the first thing that we did is we compared at the aggregate level so we took the entire body of VA medical centers and the entire body of their comparators 125 and 125 and we compared them to each other next slide please and so this is just a, a visual representation of how the VA and the civilian uh, medical centers 
measured up. As you can see in terms of size, it was a little difficult for us to find comparators in every case that were the, in, in that exact same designation that the AHA uses. Sort of a caveat to that too is that you could have a hospital that has 389 beds and it would be classified as medium sized and a hospital that has 410 beds and it would be classified as large, but they were still very similar. In terms of ownership, all of our VA um, medical centers we looked at were owned by the VA, and uh, about 75% of the civilian um, hospitals were, were nonprofit owned, and about a quarter were government owned. Next slide, please. Uh, teaching status we found um, to be most similar. We were able to find um, a similar comparator in most cases. And you can see also with rural urban continuum code, uh, the, this, the two samples are, are very similar in terms of rurality. Next slide, please. And so in, for, those aggregate, um, for that aggregate analysis, when we compared the entire body of VA medical centers to the entire body of non-VA medical centers or civilian medical centers, what we found is that in three out of four of the clinical measure cases, um, the VA performed the same or better than, their, than the entire body of civilian counterparts. And in only one case did the VA perform worse um, than the entire body of civilian counterparts. And so that was the IMM2, which was that measure of if a patient goes into the hospital, if they're, if they're admitted and they're screened for flu vaccine, are they administered that vaccine if they haven't had it yet? But in the case of surgical deaths, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and MRSA infections, the VA as a whole performed the same or better than their civilian um, comparators. Next slide, please. Next, the patient experience measures. Um, and what we found was that in two out of three of the patient experience measures, the VA performed the same or better than the entire group of, of civilian um, counterparts of those 125 um, comparators. And so for the CTM3, that care transition, uh, the patient's readiness to, to transition from the hospital to home, the entire group of VA performed significantly better than the civilian group. And also with HCAPS number 19, um, the percentage of patients who would definitely recommend it to a hospital, um, the hospital to friends and family, performed about statistically the same. But then with the HCAPS number 18, the percentage of patients who give the hospital a nine or 10 rating on a 10 point scale, the VA as a whole did perform um, worse than the entire body of civilian hospitals. Next slide, please. And then finally, we, can, um, we conducted analysis which compared these hospitals one-to-one. -one. The way that we did this is that we, um, we found the average for our entire group of 250 hospitals, and we assigned them each what's called a standardized score. And so the results represent the number of times where, where within the pair, the VA fared the same, um, better, or worse than their civilian counterpart. Next slide, please. And so this is a representation that breaks it down um, in terms of better than, equal to, or worse than um, the civilian counterpart. And so as you can see here, the yellow bar represents the number of pairs in which the VA performed better than their civilian counterpart. The gray bar is the number of times that the VA performed statistically the same as their civilian counterpart. And the brown bar represents 
the number of cases in which the VA fared worse than their civilian counterpart. And so you can see, um, particularly with the IMM2, the, the immunization, the flu immunization measure, uh, again, we see the VA performing, uh, or the, the civilian hospitals um, performing better than the VA hospital in a majority of cases. Next slide, please. And when we condense that, um, the, the VA better than with VA equal to the civilian counterpart, um, we see that again in the IMM2, the civilian hospitals, more civilian hospitals did better than the VA. But in all of the other cases, um, in those within those pairs, the VA performed the same as the statistically the same as or better than their civilian comparator. Next slide, please. And so some observations, um, some things that we've initially learned from this analysis. Uh, one of the strengths of this study is that it does provide us with a starting point in order to compare care post-Mission Act, um, but sort of an unintended effect that we're, or an, 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 an unintended consequence of this study is that we also are able to um, compare pre-COVID-19 care to post-COVID-19 care. And if we have time at the end, I can talk a little bit about what we envision in terms of considering COVID-19 as a context for this research. Um, one of the limitations that we had was that many of the medical centers were missing information. And so if, if you read the, the working paper, you'll see that in a lot of cases, we, we didn't have information for a lot of hospitals. And that, that um, was very true for some of the clinical measures, not as much for the patient experience measures. Um, HCAPs and SHEPs are reported um, very readily, and, and we, we didn't really have to eliminate based on lack of information there. We learned that VA medical centers are still an excellent choice for veterans, um, but that VA medical centers as a whole can still make some improvements in some clinical and some patient experience measures. And again, as Kayla said in the beginning, this is just a snapshot. There are so many measures that we could use to compare VA and non-VA medical centers. And um, these are just the ones that, that, that we chose based on um, recommendations and research but that we do see a little bit of room for improvement too. Next slide, please. The implications for veterans is that they may consider VA care if they haven't in the past, especially in this time of uncertainty in the healthcare system when COVID-19 is affecting um, both access to and quality of care across the board. If a veteran experiences long drive times or wait times, they might decide to check a VA hospital compare, also the measuring communities website, to see if, um, if quality is an issue, they might decide to do the extra drive or wait the extra time in order to get better care at their local VA. And if they're considering the, the nearest similar comparator, they're going to be able to find that on Measuring Communities, which Shelley's going to talk about next. And then finally, for future uh, directions, we're going to continue to collect data on these measures so that we can follow this uh, progression over time. And also future analysis is going to need to consider the impact of COVID-19 on the VA medical system um, and on the US healthcare system as a whole as we move forward. Um, thank you so much. And Shelley, um, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Joe. Um, it's been a pleasure to work on this collaboration uh, with Jill and with Kayla. I'm really grateful to them both for the opportunities that they have provided. 
I suspect some of the folks participating in the call are familiar with measuring communities, but if you're not, um, this is a, an attempt by the institute that I direct, the Military Family Research Institute, to try to assemble data from other sources and package it up in ways that are useful to community-based organizations, advocacy organizations, and others around the country who are interested in knowing how military-connected people are doing in particular places. Uh, we have, over the last several years, identified um, data sources uh, for data collected by the federal government, by state governments, and in some cases, uh, by nonprofit organizations or others that we can assemble in this portal for people to, um, to look up. The information is uh, presented in a simple way. Uh, we don't do a lot of um, uh, uh, baking and analysis or analytics. We want it to be very transparent. Um, but one of the things that is different about measuring communities is that we are able to assemble information from multiple government departments and as I mentioned, we're also able to receive data from nonprofit partners who gather substantial amounts of data uh, and agree to share it with us so that we can map it. Um, the first partner in this regard was Blue Star Families. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation also shares data with us. And we also are in the process of receiving and posting information from the Wounded Warrior Project. If we could go ahead, uh, one more slide, thank you. Um, this is an example of something, sorry, go back one. Uh, this, this map is an example of uh, what you might see when you try to look something up at measuring communities. We, we all are familiar a lot with these sorts of maps now because we've seen so many of them uh, during the pandemic. But users have uh, the ability to create maps, tables, graphs, uh, even to create spreadsheets uh, for their own use and to map um, uh, indicators against each other. So for example, to look at things like the distribution of the veteran or military population against uh, other indicators. If you go on to the next slide, you'll see that the uh, portal is designed according to 10 domains, uh, nine domains plus demographic characteristics and these map onto a community blueprint that was created years ago to identify the domains in which communities would need to be, quote, friendly in order to be considered supportive of military or veteran populations. And so we use this as a simple organizing framework so that we could organize indicators according to these categories. And we're always looking for ways um, to select indicators that are even better, measured even more rigorously, updated more often and so on. Uh, next slide, please. We welcome uh, users from um, any organization to, um, to use the site. We're happy to do trainings for organizations who would like to use it as an organization. In other words, if you would like to train staff or chapters, for example, to be able to use it, we're happy to support you with that and to provide you with an organizational uh, login so that you can sort of know what your members have been using. You can see here um, the nature of the indicators that we've chosen uh, and uh, the data, the kinds of data that we have mapped. We also have prepared snapshots 
There's a snapshot for every county uh, in the country that gives a basic summary of the military and veteran population there. We have been working with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation to create snapshots of states based on participants in their caregiver survey. And we now, uh, within the next month or so, will be posting snapshots about hospitals based on the data that Jill uh, just presented. And we welcome people to use those. Next slide, please. Um, you can see an example here of a hospital snapshot. This is New York. New York happens to have uh, quite a number of VA hospitals, and so the comparison uh, is a little more meaty than you'll see in some states where there may only be one. Um, but you can see here how um, these, this group of hospitals uh, in New York compares on the criteria that Jill talked about. And as I said, within the next month or so, we'll be posting for every state a snapshot that will allow users to look at hospital data uh, in their area. Next slide, please. Uh, here is the website for uh, the portal. You can sign up uh, for a login just to be able to have access to the site whenever you want it. We uh, produce reports approximately every year that summarize the state of the military connected population in the country and highlight issues that may deserve attention in particular regions. Um, we expect, of course, to be paying attention as COVID-related data flow through these databases and we can monitor the impact of the pandemic on military-connected people in the months and years to come. With that, I'll stop and turn it back over to Kayla. Thank you all for your kind attention. Thank you so much. I thought that was a really fascinating presentation. And as we wait for a few more audience questions to come in, I'll take the liberty of kicking off the discussion with a couple of questions. So first, Jill, can I ask, did anything surprise you about this research or your findings? Yes, and I think that um, some of that has to do with the studies that have been done previously by RAND. Um, in almost every uh, single study that compares VA and non-VA medical centers, um, it's kind of a mixed bag of results. And so there's there, there have, to my knowledge, not been a lot of generalizations that can be made about clinical and patient experience outcomes. And so it's not like we can say, oh, VA hospitals are just overall safer than um, the non-VA hospitals, or uh, patients generally have a better, um, a better view of their hospitals at civilian than VA hospitals. What we found, um, sort of going back to those, going back to those measures, is that it, it is a completely mixed bag. And so the implications of that um, are, I, I think can be both positive and negative. On the positive side, you can't make any generalizations about maybe things that um, are not working or working, but at the same time, it's probably harder to pinpoint what needs to be worked on um, when it's kind of all over the place. And so um, I thought that that was I thought that that was surprising. Those patient experience measures, the fact that um, the rating of the hospital and whether or not a, a, a veteran would recommend a hospital um, 
the fact that those two aren't necessarily um, going in the same direction, I thought was also really interesting. Um, and, and, and again, speaks to that idea of people who use the VA like the VA, people who don't use the VA or use, or, or, or use VA and non-VA mixed um, don't have as high of an opinion. So I'm wondering too, if we broke down those measures in terms of those who exclusively use the VA, use a mixed, um, kind of a mixed version of healthcare or don't use the VA at all, um, would we find that that, that that nine or 10 rating uh, changes um, based on utilization? Thanks, those are really interesting points. Um, next, Shelly, can you talk about how you think these results might be valuable for the folks that are using the Measuring Communities site? Sure. We know that many parts of the country uh, experience shortages in healthcare, and uh, those are mapped as part of measuring communities. And uh, I am a little nervous about what COVID is going to bring because it's been very challenging, I think, for rural health facilities, although it also has greatly expanded access to telehealth. So that is going to be um, interesting to try uh, to map, especially given that state licensing rules are still quite geographically based. So I think for organizations that are trying to plan priorities for their work, um, it is very useful to pay attention to mismatches between where military connected people are and where healthcare shortages are as well as other um, challenges in communities such as unemployment, poverty, uh, and, and educational challenges. So hopefully individuals will find this very useful as they try to understand the areas where they operate. Great, thank you. And we do have an audience question that has come in. I think it's best suited for Jill. And as a reminder, if anybody else has any questions, feel free to drop those into the chat box. So this question is, are there any plans to map indicators by gender or by disparities that are related to race? And um, if you also want to just talk a little bit about whether or not um, you thought about using any gender-specific measures as we looked into this or what your general thoughts are on some of the, the data-related challenges that could make answering questions like this complicated using what's publicly available. Uh, I'll speak to the to the mapping question, and uh, I'll let Jill talk a little bit about her interests uh, in in gender because I I know she certainly has them. Uh, we we actually in 2019 uh, featured as the quote deep dive for our annual report for measuring communities. We did feature gender, and so wherever we can, we do try to look at rates. Uh, by gender and to a lesser extent by race. It depends a little bit, of course, on what's available uh, for indicators, but uh, we're certainly well aware that um, there's probably no indicator that operates exactly the same across uh, uh, every population and subpopulation. And so we do uh, really try to pay a lot of attention to first age, because that's a really important differentiator between military and civilian populations, um, but then also gender, because the uh, general population is quite different from military connected populations in that regard. I do think race may very well be our next uh, deep dive, 
because we've had so much conversation about structural inequalities, which are well established and well understood in some circles, uh, but that I think there's a lot of interest now in monitoring and tackling. So it's a good time for that. Thank you for asking the question. Jill, do you want to say some things about your interests in gender? Yeah, and I think that I think that there's sort of two different conversations. One, um, one is the larger hospital comparison, and so what we're doing here is compare is comparing medical center to medical center, and the sort of context for that is who do these medical centers serve primarily, and are we seeing different outcomes in um, hospitals that serve, for example, women or um, or um, majority minority populations, um, and how that will um, how that frames the, the both the way that the patients experience the hospital, but also those safety measures. And so, moving forward into our peer-reviewed publication, those are some things that we can consider uh, when when trying to talk about context for each of these. Sort of the 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 blessing and the curse of only having pairs of. Uh, 125 pairs is that it's difficult to have enough statistical power to perform a really, really robust study, which means that we may be adding comparators um, as, as some of the RAND studies have done. But also it can be really nice because it's easier to look at that at the granular level. And so um, uh, it's easier to make statements and and um, and generalizations about the types of hospitals because it doesn't take a lot to to look at to look at each of those individually. Um, one of the good things that's also come out of this study is that we now have an enormous amount of data and we have an enormous amount of demographic data about every single that um, uh, VA hospital and every single civilian hospital. And so one of the things that that I would look, like to look at, at in, in the future is how obstetric and, and gynecological care um, function in these hospitals and how are the patient experience, the patient experience and the, the clinical and quality outcomes related to the types of care that medical centers provide. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity in looking at particularly um, pregnant uh, pregnant veterans and, and, and their families to see how does the VA serve them differently than, than other veterans who are using VA care. And I think we see a little bit of that in that data, that, that statistic that female veterans um, have difficulty accessing care in general or they delay care, and also that female veterans uh, have a higher opinion of the VA if they use the VA. Right. I mean, with the understanding that VA uh, does not provide labor and delivery or right. obstetrics, as, as, as I'm sure you all know. Um, you mentioned during your main presentation that you might have time to expand a bit on why some of this research may be particularly interesting or relevant during the pandemic. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think that that because we don't know what the end of this is, um, when we look at this from a longitudinal standpoint, if we were to take the same clinical and quality measures that we took um, last summer, which mainly came from around October of 2018, so it was the end of 2018 that we were able to collect the reporting on last summer. So 
we've got this interesting timeline whereby the implementation happened in June of 2019. Obviously, the the uh, the data collection that happens right after Ju June 2019 isn't necessarily going to tell us a whole lot about post-implementation. But then when we start to move into the time period that we would be the most interested in, that's when um, that's when both the Mission Act and COVID-19 coalesce. And as I was saying too, at the granular level, we, we can make generalizations, but we can also look at these pairs and we're not going to be able to make generalizations about Mission Act implementation because we've got this added control of COVID-19. And so we also know that in some, in, in some cases, VAs have been overwhelmed by COVID-19. And in other cases, VAs have been a supplement to local health, um, to local healthcare systems in order to take on extra patients. Uh, particularly, I think on the East Coast, New York and New Jersey is, is where we're seeing a lot of that. And so that all creates a context dependent uh, sort of environment where where statistically we're going to have to figure out how to how to consider that how to control for that um, or do we do we sort of um, do we have to wait a really long time to see and so there there are a lot of questions I think uh, also are patients going to have a a better or worse opinion of their experience based on COVID nineteen whether or not they were a COVID-19 patient, how did that sort of intensity and sometimes chaos, especially if we're talking about March, um, how did that influence their experience? Were they given, if they weren't a COVID-19 patient, were they given the same level of care um, transitioning home that they would have pre-COVID-19 because that focus was on, was on saving lives in that sense? Thank you. We have one more audience question, and I'll, I'll mention you had uh, discussed a bit earlier about how this is primarily comparing, you know, hospitals at the at the hospital level. But given the amount of demographic information that you have, do you think that you'd be able to break apart for the healthcare satisfaction ratings differences by patient type in terms of age group or subsets of patients such as those with spinal cord injuries or behavioral health conditions? Do you, is there that level of granularity available in the data set? It, it, isn't, it isn't currently, but what we can do is we can classify uh, medical centers as by specialty. And so that's not necessarily looking at the percentage of patients who have a spinal cord injury or TBI. Um, but it would tell us something about what kinds of patients are sent there, both from the VA, but also which patients too are not veterans would choose to go to those hospitals. And so I would see that as more of a, we're also looking at, we're looking at inpatient too. And so that's another thing to consider is that um, spinal cord injury and amputee status could be very, very different than say behavioral health care. If a majority of behavioral health, and I, I'm not actually sure about this, but um, if, a, if, if the majority of behavioral health care is sought at outpatient um, versus inpatient um, clinics and facilities. And so we would have to keep that in mind, uh, but we can, we can, we can classify, um, we can classify very easily um, VA hospitals by specialty. We know where TBI patients are most commonly sent, ampu, um, amputee patients are most commonly sent, um, but in a lot of cases, hospitals uh, represent their specialties differently 
because it's 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 more of a a, a PR and advertising um sort of uh sort of effort and so we would have to know the breakdown in order to really call i think in order in a lot of cases to call a comparator a a, a spinal cord injury facility or a or a facility that people would choose for spinal cord injury right um so then the, the final question that we have that's come in is you know, now that we've seen this information that again validates previous research about the high quality of VA care, uh, and how do we how do we get that information out to people that need to see it? Um, who is this most useful to? Is it is it most useful for advocates? Is it most useful for veterans themselves? And is the the work that we've done? you know, sufficient to make it a little more digestible for lay people, for veterans, or what are the next steps in trying to communicate this message about, to, to do the, the research translation and get the results into the hands of those who, who may be most benefited from having it? Shelley, do you want to speak to that? To. Um, well, in fact, I think um, this session is a first step on that path because we could have chosen to just prepare something for an academic journal and been done, be done with it. And so we're especially grateful to Kayla for not only um, helping us to uh, develop the idea uh, for this, which really originated with her, but then to plan the execution in this way so that we're really proceeding along parallel tracks through the academic peer-reviewed literature, but also um, with advocacy organizations, stakeholder groups, the media. I know we have a journalist on the on the call. Um, so that those are ways to try to get it out uh, to the larger world. Um, the snapshots that we've prepared, we'll do our best to publicize them and make those widely available. And then in our next report, We'll be highlighting um, the results again to try to reinforce it, and that gets dis disseminated uh, quite widely. So those are our goals, but we certainly welcome suggestions uh, from folks who have participated or know of organizations that we should be trying to reach out to uh, to spread the word. And Jill, any closing remarks from you? Um, no, just again, I'd like to thank you, Kayla, for, um, for again, as Shelley said, facilitating the dissemination of this, um, of giving it that practical component, because I do think a lot of times with research, as Shelley said, it tends to go into the peer-reviewed um, chasm and, and doesn't necessarily reach the folks who would be interested in the information. And so I appreciate your, your persistence on, on making sure that we do that. Um, and thank you to MFRI for, for allowing me to work with you over the last year and hopefully into the future. Well, I hope everyone in the audience will join me in thanking both Jill and Shelley for sharing these really fascinating insights. I would also be remiss if I didn't express my deep appreciation to Natalie, Emma, Jasmine, Chris, 
Cole, and the rest of the team here at CNAS, whose hard work made this event run really smoothly. Uh, thanks so much to the audience for joining us virtually. And I encourage you to follow at CNASDC on Twitter or go to our website and click follow to get email updates about future content like this. We did record the session. And so if you have uh, friends or colleagues who were unable to attend, you can share the link once we post it. If you have any questions, feel free to follow up with me by email or with uh, Dr. Innersot or Dr. Wadsworth. Their information was in the PowerPoint as well. So thanks so much for joining us today. I hope everyone has a terrific afternoon and stay tuned to future developments in what's out there in the world of VA data. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.